Welcome to the Do More Podcast, where we share strategies and tips for improving your life in every aspect. Here's your host, John Farling. All right, welcome back to the show. Today I have a a newer friend, I guess. He's come to a couple of our LFG events on the East Coast uh, a couple years ago and uh, met him and just kind of, just from afar, kind of notice he he carries himself very well. Um, he's well spoken, and have gotten to know him a little bit uh, uh, better since then. But want to dive further into what he's doing um, and, and his expertise and all that. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Why don't you uh, introduce yourself and tell us who you are and what you're doing? Will do. Thank you, buddy, for the uh, the kind intro. Thanks for having me, John. Excited to to be with you today, man. So. Um, my name is Sean Magner. I run a collective of real estate investment businesses based out of the Baltimore, Maryland metro, primarily residential real estate investing. Uh, what that looks like is a small rental property portfolio of a few dozen single family doors. I run a uh, hard money lending business and uh, we've recently launched a uh, coaching mastermind helping new investors get started and experienced investors kind of connect some dots, systematize their business to, uh, to level up to the you know, consistent six, seven figure goals that they seek. That's awesome. So that's a really quick intro. Uh, we're going to dive into all that. So let's back up. <clears throat> How'd you sure. get it started in the real estate? What were you doing before that? Good question, man. So I can go way back and I'll, I'll try not to digress too much, but um, after out of high school, didn't really have any direction, right? Wasn't planning for college, wasn't really preparing for that in, in school. So uh, all of a sudden all my friends were leaving for college and I'm sitting there thinking, what the hell am I going to do? So I... Um, I heard like a lot had that there were some money to be made in the trades. So I started to swing some hammers and push brooms around job sites right out of high school, decided I liked the trades, decided to get a formal education in the trades. My family has a background there. Uh, And so um, I went to a small trade school. I uh, got an applied science, an associates of applied science with a major in carpentry, believe it or not, Mm. that's a legit degree. Uh, So um, swung hammers for a few years thereafter and uh, on different remodeling and new construction job sites, primarily residential, some commercial, uh, and then got to know some building material manufacturer reps that would come to our job sites, right? And got to know them pretty well. And one day a guy approached me and said, hey, I'm taking a promotion. My job is going to become available. Do you have an interest in leaving the field? And uh, I decided to take a chance on myself. And so I got into building material sales. I was 22 years old at the time, um, leveled up a few times, ultimately getting into building material sales and middle management and leadership for uh, some different building material manufacturers and wholesalers. And that allowed for, for some time and financial freedom, right? And that uh, allowed me to kind of explore other avenues. And with my resume, real estate just made sense. The barrier of entry here is pretty low. Um, you don't have to have you know a high degree to, to have success here. And um, you just have to have, you know, some, some guts. And, um, and so anyhow, I took a chance on myself again and started, I joined a coaching mastermind actually, gosh, this is way back 2015, 2014, joined a coaching mastermind and, um, put my first flip under contract a few months later, put my first rental under contract. And a year later I had 18 doors and a few flips going and we were off to the races. Wow. That's, uh, you skipped a lot there. You did a lot in a short period of time. So you were uh, you're swinging the hammer uh, and then got promoted then outside sales it sounds like right that's right and had some time for him sounds like we have a somewhat similar path too I was in outside sales I wanted to um, do kind of the rehab stuff uh, my dad actually built some spec homes growing up so 
somewhat of a similar path here. Um, something had to have clicked where you're like, okay, you're, you've got this outside sales job. I'm guessing you probably made at least decent money. You had some time freedom. What made it, what happened when you're like, I want to do something other than just this nine to five. Was there a pivotal turning point? You know, there's a couple things I'd say. So there was a time I used to go, I worked for a high end remodeler. And so we'd go to these big, beautiful homes and, and I'd always be curious what these owners did for a living. And every single one of them owned something that didn't work for someone. Mm. And so that started to resonate with me. Um, shortly thereafter, I was introduced to that book. I'm sure you're familiar with wherever it is right there. And Rich Dad, Poor Dad, for those that are listening. And, you know, I started learning the differences between assets and liabilities and moving around the cash flow quadrant to become from an, to shift from an employee to a business operator to an, an investor. And, and so there was that, but there was also a time, and I remember this, I've shared this story a few times. I remember sitting on a job site. We were framing a house one summer. It was so hot, man. I would bring an extra gallon of water to work. And this was before the sales job. I'd bring an extra gallon of water to work. I'd bring two extra t-shirts. It was just, it was gross. It was really hot. I remember sitting on this job site. We were on a lunch break and this old man named Ray, he sat down. This guy was wearing knee pads. He'd wear knee pads if we were hanging siding. It didn't matter, right? He had knee pads on. And I watched him sit down and get back up. And I'm like, that guy looks like he's just in pain. And he was in his 70s. Ray was an older guy. I'm like, you know, that just can't be me. So between those things and, and me just wanting more, I also realized that having taken some risks on myself, it, it, it was fruitful. And so that kind of that was kind of telling, right? Meaning that if you just take a few more risks on yourself, the, if you take bigger risks on yourself, you might have bigger rewards. And so, um, you know, I, that's really what it was. It was just the time freedom that allowed me. And I also gotten some kind of that reading that book, I was introduced to that book at tw- uh, 22 or so, pretty young, 23, yeah. maybe 20, somewhere in there. And I had, that was, that created for me a paradigm shift. It just shifted everything. How I viewed money, finances, uh, business, life in general. It, it allowed me, it had kind of like an aha moment, right? Where a light bulb went off and I realized that the world was bigger than the narrow lenses that I'd been looking through. Yeah. So, <clears throat> You know as well as anybody that just because you read that book doesn't mean you're going to take action and go do what you did. So what's the right. difference between what you did? You had the realization, right? You had the aha moment of, okay, there's there's more out there. I'm going to go down this path. And there's people that have that aha moment, but don't do anything. And they'll they'll either, you know, a few things. They'll either keep learning. Um, overeducate themselves or they'll just find something else or they'll just drop off. So what, what's the difference? What do you think happened to you? Why you kept going? I think the re I think mentorship is what happened to me. I think surrounding myself with the right people that were taking action, that were telling me you're going to do it. You've got it. Just stay the course was tremendously helpful because these are the people that I was emulating. These are the folks I wanted to be. And some of them were authors in books. Uh, I mean, that shelf back there, it's hidden behind the microphone, but there's another room over there full of books. I've been a, I'm a pretty avid reader and I'd say that's part of it. But I also recognize that a lot of people do get stuck in like what you're saying, analysis paralysis. They're just, they, they, they overthink it. They learn, 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 but don't implement and I've heard all the cliches and quite honestly, I love those cliches, you know, there's some, and I'm going to forget the one right now. I'm going to try to, to whatever it is. You might remember what it is when I start going down this butchered quote, but something along the lines of dreams without action is some, whatever. So what the heck is it saying? It might come to me in a little bit, but if, if you don't take action, you're just going to continue to dream 
And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to find myself in five or 10 years or any distance down the road being exactly where I was today. Um, and so I think that, I think mentorship is probably the big one. So, uh, and I, I, I don't like giving people the label of my mentor um, necessarily, but because I found mentors in lots of different people that probably don't even know it. Um, but I think just surrounding yourself with the right people, action takers, people that are doing what you want to do and, and being that. And I never wanted to be labeled as someone that walked to the water, but didn't know how to drink. Right. I just didn't want to be that guy. And so, um, again, I kind of go back to that sales thing too. And I, I just took a chance on myself and it paid off. And also I'll say this in reading a few books and then implementing them, I helped my dad get through a really financially challenging time. Um, our house was in pre-foreclosure four months behind. This was, I was about 18, 19 years old. House was in pre-foreclosure. We were four months behind in rent. We had a car repossessed out of the driveway. He was struggling because he'd gone through a divorce that just leveled him financially. And I started taking uh, financial literacy seriously. I started reading books and implementing them. And I watched him turn it all around by implementing those, those things, those lessons. And so I realized that this stuff works, man. It does if you just do the work. So that was part of it too, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a turning point there. Now you, you touched on a really good point that, uh, and it can go both ways, right? Whoever you're surrounding yourself with is you're going to become the average of, of those people. Right. And that's, yeah. that's not only the physical people around you, but that's books, podcasts, videos you watch, right? The more of that stuff you consume, the more average of that, you know, mentality you become. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. That's a really good point. Cause I don't think, and I actually, I was listening to podcasts this morning. Um, Brandon Novak, who's from Baltimore, Baltimore City. Um, okay. He was part of Jackass. And oh, yeah. he was, yeah, if you know him, he, um, I'll try to make this a quick story. He was talking about, yeah. he was a huge, he um, abused drugs. Like, I remember him on Jackass and he was, you could just tell, like, he was constantly on drugs. Like, he just woke up high. Um, and he's completely turned his life around. And he said the reason why was because, well, one of the reasons, um, why he was in that situation was because of people that he was around. And then obviously that shifted because now he, some, he had a trajectory trajectory point to where he wanted to go the opposite direction. And he surrounded himself with people that were clean, um, people had gotten sober and all that stuff. So it's amazing how just surrounding yourself by the people that, are doing what you want to do is how powerful that is. It's tremendously so. And and I agree with you a thousand percent, if that's even in a way, if I can agree with you that much. I mean, you are certainly a product of the of, of your environment and you are, as the cliche say, I told you, I love these cliches, man. Uh, but you are, um, you know, this, the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I've used this example before in, in other conversations. Like if I spend my time with a bunch of gamers, I'm probably going to start playing video games, right? If I spend my time with a bunch of gamblers, I'm probably going to start to gamble. Um, if you surround yourself with a bunch of real estate entrepreneurs, you might just become a real estate entrepreneur and that I, I fully embrace that. Um, it happens. It just does. I mean, uh, I was at lunch last week with seven local private lenders, a lot of hard, just a small group of hard money lenders. And if you had rewound two or three times, two or three years ago, I probably wouldn't, I could have pictured myself there, but I started forcing my way into those rooms. And now that's, those are the rooms that I'm expected to be in and that I'm in most often. And it's not by coincidence, man. It's not, it's by intention, right? It's, it, I seek these things out. I seek these rooms out. So um, yeah, no, I think it's, you are certainly a product of those you surround yourself with, no doubt.
Yeah. Well, you just hit on a word too that I absolutely love is intention. And mm-hmm. sometimes, at least for myself, sometimes it's more of a, I don't even call it a gut feeling, but sometimes I don't even know I'm being intentional, but subconsciously I am. And I think some of that probably, we're playing psychologists here, but probably parlays into who I'm surrounded by and what I'm what I'm consuming as well, right? So yeah. intentionality is huge. And obviously, you know, you're a product of that too. You know, you, in your intro, you made mention where we met and we met at one of you and Ian's, uh, Ian Horowitz, shout out, uh, your LFG masterminds that you guys put together. And those types of rooms, I seek them out. I mean, when you, whether that group is predominantly, you probably agree, that group is predominantly commercial and self-storage focused, right? There's a handful of us resi operators in there, residential operators in there. But I like being in that group because you're surrounded by guys and and gals that are doing this with morals and ethics and integrity. They're doing it the right way and at a very high level. I can get on board with that. I don't really care what the topic is, right? I mean, I'm not going to become a self-storage operator, maybe not right now at least, right? That's not my goal. But I can certainly gain value and provide value by being in those rooms. And you know what I love about those rooms, this this whole idea of intentionality? I love when you leave there. That motivation doesn't last very long. It lasts maybe a week or two, right? But when you leave those types of environments, you feel like you could run through a wall, right? You're, You're ready to level up. Everybody else has just introduced you to things that you may not have even known about. You might have done that for them as well. But man, you just you get this energy that, that that is intoxicating that allows you to to perform for a, at least a short time at a pretty high level. You know, it's um, I, I think about I recently attended a a thing called the Aspire Tour. I don't know if you've seen this thing at all going around social, but Aspire it's a group of private equity kind of giants that are hosting this one day. Uh, kind of like a con- like a conference meets a rock show for real estate for or not for real estate but but for entrepreneurs. I mean, they have had every major celebrity you can think of. Kevin Hart on stage. When I went, I saw Barbara Corcoran speak and Alex Rodriguez, and they just bring some studs on stage. And it's just you're just talking about business, entrepreneur, money conversations, and it's a one day thing, so it's not a huge commitment. And you leave there just ready. You're on fire, just ready to run through a wall. So uh, I seek those rooms out with intention as well for that yeah. reason. Dude, that, no, that's awesome. That's awesome stuff. I want to hit on a couple of things before we get back to your story. Um, yeah. You made a really good point of, well, one, those events and our LFG event, it is storage uh, focused, uh, but I can probably see that changing a little bit too um, as we're more business operations. But there's still... It's still storage focused, but I just joined a mastermind that is, it's all entrepreneurs. It's mostly real estate. I'd say it's 98% real estate, but there's um, one or two that are just small business owners. Uh, And I know that I'm going to learn something from the multifamily guy, from the single family guy to the hard money guy. I'm going to learn something from every single one of them that I can apply in my business. Um, So that's why I go to those events. But I wanted to hear, you made a good point that we leave those events pumped and it's you got a you know a week or two high that and i'm still on mine um where you're just pumped and energized and you're ready to keep going and just you know crush the world how do you keep that going to where it's not a temporary one to two week high how do you keep that motivation going it's a great question i saw a quote this morning that somebody shared that like the greatest human ability is or something is our greatest quality and most difficult quality to maintain is consistency and i i think it's true I don't know that it's necessarily the hardest, but I do think that consistency is challenging. Um, 
for me, accountability partners is one of the answers. Mm. What do I mean by that? At the gym, I have a trainer. He's an accountability partner. I may wake up and not want to go, but I know there's a dude waiting for me at six or six thirty-five, ready to kick my ass, and I need to show up. And um, I might otherwise want to stay in bed, especially this. I mean, we're down in the teens as far as temperature goes. It's January, Maryland. I kind of want to stay in my warm bed, but I know that this dude is waiting for me, so I got to get there. And I love having him. I've got accountability partners everywhere. I've got a coach in my business. Um, I think accountability is helpful. Um, uh, I think, and this kind of predates COVID, but you were able in the in pandemic shutdowns and such, but we were able to attend a lot of live events pretty regularly. Not as much, and you've probably seen this in your home market as well. A lot of those have fallen off and become more virtual, which is cool. But you know, going to those things in person was really helpful. But um, it is difficult. The consistency thing is difficult. So I think listening to podcasts with intention, time blocking your calendar and making time for events that like, like podcasting uh, this morning, I'm going to m- drive to the office. And w- when I get there, I'm going to sit for 15 minutes in the car, enjoy my coffee while I finish a podcast, do that two or three times a week, just so that you're, you kind of keep that, that engine fueled, if you will. Um, that's really all that I can think of at the moment, man. That's really what I do. That's awesome. Well, that's related back to kind of how you got started too, is surround yourself with the right people, right? That's right. And accountability. And if you've got the right people, they're going to hold you accountable. Oh, man, that's awesome stuff. So let's go back to your story. So it sounds like 2014, 15, which is same timeline as me, which is weird. Um, (laughs) You had 18 houses. I did not. I had one. Uh, How did you get 18? How did you fund it? How did you find it? How'd you get the balls to do that? <laughs> Unpack all Good that. Question. Yeah. So uh, August, no, November of that year, I bought my, or I put my first flip under contract. And I was under the impression I was going to have to flip, 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 buy a rental eventually, right? I didn't really know about the Burr strategy as we all know it so well today. I'd never even heard of the Burr strategy. For those listening, buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. Um, I didn't know that was a thing, right? I just thought I needed to have a whole bunch of cash and then go to a bank and they're going to give me a loan. But now I've got cash for a down payment. I didn't really know how the how the economics of it really penciled out. So um, I put that first flip under contract in November. I bought it in January. But to kind of go back, where I'm going to go with this is I met a couple of people that I'm going to introduce you to in a sec. But I attended one of those coaching programs that I joined. I attended an event and they, the, my friend of mine said, you need to sit in on this one. We're going to talk about low cost, no cost marketing. Okay. Just a panel. He's going to be on the panel. So I sat in on it and he said, when you attend these networking events at the time, the RIA, the Baltimore real estate investor association meetings were very big. When you attend those things, attend them with a purpose. And the purpose should always be to add one person to your team. And by doing that, John, as you probably know, it takes this overwhelm of this giant room full of experts and makes it a little more digestible and less intimidating. And so I did that. I went back and I said, I'm going to add one person to my team. I found a guy who looked approachable. Turns out he was a hard money lender. I didn't have a deal, but I approached him. We shared contact information. We had coffee the next week and I explained some of my goals. And he said, you need to meet these two people. One was a realtor to help me start finding off uh, MLS marketed deals. And the other was a local well-known landlord that owned a lot of houses and could help me with my ambitions there in the, in the, the acquisition of rental property goal. And so I met the realtor and I ended up buying a house with using him. And a few months later, I was attending an event. And at that event, I saw this other guy that he said I should mention, I should meet this guy. And uh, that is a landlord in Baltimore here. And 
I, uh, I approached him and I said, hey, our mutual friend said that we might find some mutual benefit in a conversation. So I wanted to introduce myself. We went to lunch the next week. That guy owned about 125 houses and by, we became inseparable. So to, to pause there and back up, in November, I bought that or I put that first flip under contract. In January, two months later, I bought that first flip. Fast forward to June, and that January is when I met that second guy. Fast forward to June, I sold that flip. I made $21,315. I'll never forget it. And I also had five rentals under renovation that I were actively in the burr, the burr process. Now, that seems aggressive, and I see you shaking your head, and you're right. I mean, it, it, for some, it is. Nowadays, you see people doing much bigger things, at least I do. But at the time, I was it was very aggressive. But I surrounded myself with the people that told me how to do it, how to cut the line, how to do it properly. A, a mentor and a, and a coach or the, the, somebody that has more experience, they're just a cheat code, man. They help you cut the line. And you can learn from their mistakes. And, and, and so I met him and he introduced me to the burst strategy and allowed me to kind of leapfrog over that whole flip a whole bunch of houses step. I thought I was going to have to do, uh, I've bought way more rentals than I've, I've done flips before. Um, and so anyhow, then you fast forward a few more months and I, he, with his guidance, I successfully negotiated a seller financed 10 unit portfolio acquisition. And so that's how I really started to kind of grow this thing. And so Again, I mean, we're really driving home the point here on this on this on this episode, though, of the importance of these relationships. Um, yeah. If you see anything I put out on social, it's usually relationship intensive is the focus, and, and these are the reasons why. It's what's worked for me, and so, yeah, man, that's how I got going. And you asked one question: How'd you have the balls to do it? Again, this guy was holding my hand. This guy was holding my hand saying, nope, don't do that. That's a bad deal. This is a good deal. I'll tell you, he introduced me to a couple of people and I started looking at some rental properties in Baltimore City. I'm in Baltimore City, which is known to, to have you know some tough pockets. And I'm buying a bunch of Section 8 or I'm in neighborhoods that are predominantly Section 8 type properties. And you think, oh, I don't really, you really got to know what you're looking at here. And so I met with a lady. She was, she's a killer. She's a good friend of mine still. And she, she was an agent who owned a lot of houses. She started showing me some houses. And when she said to me, if you don't buy this one, I will. That told me I knew what I, I now knew what to look for, right? I knew this is what a good deal looks like. So it's just that. That was exactly how it happened. So um, the balls also came from, I didn't want to be embarrassed by taking all their time and knowledge and not executing, not implementing. I didn't want to, I didn't want them to think that I was wasting their time because I don't like when people waste mine. I mean, as you get to know me, I'm, I, I respect time more than anything. And um, I don't ever waste people's time. I'm not a fan of it at all. It, it's it's not okay. So that's really what what drove me. And um, yeah, man, I think that's that's really how it happened. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, back to accountability, right? Um, and who you surround yourself with. So let's break down your first deal really quick. Um, my guess is you probably bought it for what eight grand. <laughs> first, my first grand. rental property. Yeah. Well, the, the first, first your first your first flip because you um, it sounds like you okay. use hard money. Just take yeah, us behind that, um, the yep. money that you used and yeah. Yeah. So I actually ended up using that guy I met at that networking event. I used him for the hard money. Uh, he was working for a big firm out of uh, out of New York, New Jersey at the time. He works for a local bank now in, in the commercial loan space and we're still good buddies to this day. That was eight, nine years ago. And he, um, yeah, I, so I bought that thing for $66,000. I asked my agent, I said, hey, I'm looking at a bunch of houses you're sending me. I like them, but I don't have a contractor. I don't know how I'm going to flip these things, right? 
He says, well, you should meet this guy, Sam. He introduced me to a guy named Sam. Sam and I did the next dozen houses together or so. So Sam, Sam, this is something I'll, I'll certainly share is, is this next thing, but Sam started coming with me to look at properties and he would point things out and say, we got to get out of here. We're not going to buy this house. And I would say why he would show me and I would learn. Of course I have a construction background, but I don't have a flip specific background, right? I've never been a flipping operator. It's different than swinging hammers. Um, and so he would point things out that I didn't see and that I missed. And he could tell me because this guy had 35 flips going at the time that we met. So he was very well into this thing. And he he could tell me this is going to be a $50,000 rehab. That's a $65,000 renovation. So I quickly was able to kind of start to see without having to like do a really detailed repair estimator on every single deal. I could start to see what a $50,000 rehab looked like compared to an $80,000 rehab. So I can be in and out of these things with speed and ease. And so Sam... Um, we went to a bunch of houses and Sam ended up, um, uh, what was I going with that? He, um, where was I going with that? I just lost, I just had a brain fart. So uh, there it was. Thanks. I just got it back. Sorry. Thanks for the pause. So Sam helped me. He looked at this property. I, we went to a whole bunch of them together and he said, Hey, um, that house that you, that I ended up buying is going to be an $88,000 rehab, 88,000. So I had a $66,000 acquisition and an $88,000, $88,000 renovation. Um, He's the kind of a contractor, though, who's very hands-off, and, and my my role was very hands-off. He basically said, are we doing browns or grays? Grays were becoming a thing at the time. I said, gray. That was like the only decision I made, like really one of the only decisions I made. So I didn't choose layouts and finishes and all that. He was very much the guy. So that was pretty helpful for the first one. Um, but what's what I where I... Why I want to stay on that topic of that guy, not necessarily him specifically, but those listening that are trying to connect these dots, I would say find a general contractor that's in that space, pay that person for their time, ask them to meet you at a few properties that you've already underwritten. You already know, you think you have an idea of what the construction is going to be. You already know what the ARV is after repair value for those that are listening. And the last number you need is that construction number. Pay a guy like him, a guy or a gal like them to meet you at a property don't, you know, don't ask them for favors. If you don't, you can't ask the hundred thousand dollar favor if you don't have a hundred thousand dollar relationship. Right. So don't ask them for that. Just tell them you're paying for their time and to give you a ballpark quote there on the spot, you'll never hold them to anything. I just need to know about what this would cost. Do that a few times, half a dozen times, a dozen times. It'll become a lot easier. It really will. And also you're going to form a relationship with this person. Then when you pull the trigger, they're going to know that you're serious. It just goes, it bodes well for everyone. So, um, that's that's what worked for me. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Well, then another thing I noticed, <clears throat> part of probably your success is obviously who you surround yourself with, but seems like you're not afraid to ask questions and ask for help. No. Um, have you always been like that? No, that's a good question. Or good, that's a really good question, John. No, dude, I haven't. Thank I you. was the kid. I've been working yeah, on that one. That's a really good question. Um, I was in high school. I was disruptive as a young youngster, right? ADHD was probably the thing that that's maybe overdiagnosed, but I was, I was disruptive in classes, right? I was not studious at all. I was waiting for the bell to ring so I could go socialize, right? That was my thing. And as such, I got in, I remember ninth grade, I was put into a, not a resource room, but a, a some sort of a, a, like a specialized education room because of my disruption. I think I wasn't very studious. And part of it was my intimidation to like raise my hand and ask questions. I was a kid sitting in the back of the class, right? I wasn't sitting in the front of the class. Um, my sister was this way too. She would have a, she would be so, in, so afraid of failure that she would not turn in homework 
she would do the homework, but just wouldn't turn it in. How crazy is that? So anyhow, I was very much the same way. I was very intimidated to raise my hand. I didn't want to look dumb in front of people that I thought I was, I needed to look cool in front of. And then I got to, to that trade school and I really, I knew I was now paying to be there. Right. So now it changed things. Um, I moved to the, from the back of the class to the front of the class. And I was then asking questions because I realized that when I asked questions, I I was able to connect the dot, a novel concept. Right. And so I, I, I gained some confidence from doing that, but no, I was not always the kid that would ask questions. Now I'm definitely, I'm, I'm inquisitive. I've always been a curious, a naturally curious person, but, uh, until, uh, you know, I got into the trades and then business, uh, really until I got into a space that I was interested in the subject matter, yep. um, I was not going to ask questions cause I didn't really care. Yep. That man, that's, you just basically, well, besides the, uh, um, the disrupting class, but that, that was me to a T as well. Like in class, I, I'm going to knock schools, but I hated school. Um, and it seems, it seems like a lot of entrepreneurs have the same path with school, right? Like we all hated it. Uh, we did just enough to get by. Um, but there is something about like just being curious and like you said, finding something that, that you enjoyed. Um, cause yeah, I've, you know, we're playing psychologists a little bit again too now, but, there's something about being inquisitive, curious, and wanting to learn more that I don't think that's a common thing, um, especially as we get older, right? As as kids, if you're five years old, yeah, that everyone is. Um, but as you get older, I don't think most adults are inquisitive and ask questions and are curious. What are your thoughts on that? I have a hard time answering that, man. And here's why. I surround myself with the people that are like me, right? And mm-hmm. so, or that are ahead of me. And so those people all ask great questions and they dig Mm -hmm. deeper and they ask why again and again and again. But I often pull myself back and I kind of scroll the social like we all do. And I see some friends from back in the day, high school and that. And I see they're kind of, some of them maybe are still stuck in, in, in a rhythm that would be a nine to five, you know, punch a time clock kind of a lifestyle. And I think those are the ones that don't ask the questions, right? I think those are the ones that aren't willing to take the risks on themselves and bet on themselves. And I saw recently, I've seen this a few times. I think it's really, really interesting. Some, Real that's gone viral or the guy's talking about who entrepreneurs are. And the entrepreneur is the C student, the C student that's looking out the window, thinking about how they can do the things differently and do things better. Yep. Who's not so concerned about Pythagorean theorem. I don't even know how to say or spell that word words. I don't even know if it's one or two words, right? That's ridiculous. It's two, I think anyway. So I don't, I, there was, I was off looking out, uh, out the window focused on something different. I also, as an entrepreneur, I think we all have this kind of authoritarian, you know, repulsion. I, we kind of resist authority, right? In some ways. Yeah. And I think that, I don't mean I'm a lawbreaker. I don't think you're a lawbreaker, but you get the point, right? I think if there's a game winning shot to be made, I want the ball, right? I think that we just want the control. And when somebody else tries to, and eh, nah, I don't no, I don't, I don't love that. So I think that, um, I think that, yeah, I don't know, man. I, those people, I think you're right. I think you are generally right. I think that you are. I don't think that most people ask why and they're not curious. I think that falls off at some point when they get comfortable and stuck in their own rhythm. Yeah. No, that's yeah, that's some really good points. I, I'm curious myself because there there's something that happens to obviously entrepreneurs. And I'm not saying everyone has to be an entrepreneur, right? Like we all need employees. Um, yeah. I was employed for basically almost 20 years of my life. Um we all need employees. That's what makes the world go around. 
but there's something that happens that, and it, not again, not that it's right or wrong, but something happens and it's like, I'm shifting from employee and I'm going over here. Like you said, yeah. maybe it's control. Maybe it's constantly, I've noticed as I've become an entrepreneur, full-time entrepreneur, I qu- now question everything. Like someone say it says it's cloudy day. I'm like, are you sure? Like, I see a yeah. little bit of sun. Like I question everything nope. now, which is odd. Um, no, but anyways, let's get back to your story. So, sure. uh, what 2015, 18 single family units. It sounds like you did some flips. Take us from there. Sure. So, um, I was actually at the time still do, working a W two job. Um, I was in a sales leadership role, so I had a lot so of time. So you're doing all this while working a W two. Oh yeah, yeah. That's crazy. It was a man. grind. I was single, didn't have a children or a wife at the time, and it, it would, you know, that would certainly have, that certainly would have impacted the speed, no doubt. Sure. Um, now having a family, I know, you know, the time commitments that are that are that that takes, and so no, I, at the time I was just single. I mean, I'll say this in 2016, I think it was. Yeah, it was 2016. A group of us in Baltimore bought a boat together. We live right along the water. We figured we might as well use it. We bought this old clunky piece of crap. Six of us went in. There were three couples, me and another woman who, I, who ended up becoming my wife, me and a good friend of mine who became my wife. We all bought this boat. And that boat went out almost every weekend. And I went out on that boat a handful of times. So I had to say no a lot. Uh, that took some discipline. But I knew that my goals were bigger than the, those fun times on the boat. That eventually, if I pursued this hard enough, I'd have a bigger, better boat to go out on whenever I wanted to, right? So um, I was still working the W2 job. I was burning every candle at every end, you name it, right? That's what you have to do. You know, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, a lot of people in this, this space know who he is, has a famous saying, if you don't, I don't really care what you're doing from nine to five, what are you doing from five to nine, right? So what's your evening like? What's your, what's your, your work nine to five to pay the bills and five to nine to build the dream, right? And so what are you doing in the evening? Um, so I got pretty disciplined, man. I would keep Netflix, turn the, the TV off and it was on. I'd, I would guilt myself out of it. But I was working the W-2 thing still, and um, I started, so that was, I guess that was 16, 17. I continued doing a couple flips, buying more rentals, attending all sorts of events, networking events, and doing the W-2 thing. And I did that for a few years. And then eventually, um, I started coaching for the same company that I joined to learn real estate investment education, Mm. or real estate investment, investing. Uh, I started coaching for that company just over the phone in the evenings. Uh, And then that turned into a traveling speaking role. So I was speaking for that same company, uh, just traveling the East Coast up to New England and down to like, you know, mid-Atlantic, down a little bit in the South, Um, just speaking for them and doing some coaching for them while working a W-2 job and running my business. (laughs) It was, it was too much, dude. It was too much. Um, absolutely too much. I was, I had some stress related health concerns at the time. It was, you know, I put too much on myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then ultimately, uh, just a little before COVID, before the pandemic, what was that early 2020? Um, I was able to kind of leave the W2 thing behind and just go full-time in the, the real estate space. And so I've been full-time here since. So kind of a fast forward nutshell recap, but that's really what happened. That's awesome. So uh, I do want to back up a little bit. So uh, you had W2. Sounds like you had some freedom with that. And you started building your your rental portfolio, doing some flips. And then you said, you know what? I want another gig and have another boss. Why'd you go down that path? Um, and I'm not saying as opposed to continue going down the single family rentals or in flips. But obviously that took up some time to where you probably lost out on, I don't want to say lost out on, but 
took up some time, right? And it was probably yeah. tougher to build that that rental portfolio. Why'd you do the the speaking? Great question. Um, personal development. I really loved it. It was a challenge. Uh, you know, they you know some by some surveys. Public speaking is the thing most people fear most, right? More so than sharks and alligators, it's public speaking. And uh, early in my sales career, I had a coworker who was a rock star of a salesperson. He told me, he said, Sean, people and problems don't go away. If there's an issue that arises, hit that thing head on. And I've embraced that in everything that I've done. That that resonated with me then, and it still does. I recite that now 15 years later or so. And so I thought, wow, same with public speaking. There's a, something that that scares people. Um, but I really, I, what I, and there's a couple of things that happened. So first of all, I wanted the personal development challenge to grow, to stretch, to expand myself, right? To become a better, better, well, more well-rounded version of myself. And then when you're on stage and I've had, at this point, I've had a, a pretty good amount of experience and some success and some failures. And so when you're speaking into a, a crowd and you say something, you don't, may not know what it was, but you said something and you saw that guy in the front row with that gal's eyes light up, you just connected a dot. You may not have done it intentionally, mm-hmm. but I just connected a dot for this person. And I, and I provided the nugget that they sought when they came here today. And I get a lot of fulfillment from that. So I knew the path that I was on was going to lead to success eventually, but it's real estate. It's not get rich quick. It's get rich slow, right? So I knew that it was going to work, but to your point, yes, it did take me out of my market, which made me kind of, I had to compromise or sacrifice some opportunities. Um, But I think I gained a whole lot more from it because I wasn't just making an income on the road. I was making an impact and that was very impactful for me. It was very fulfilling for me. Um, So that was the reason why, but I'll also be candid, man. I had, when I was doing a lot of my renovations, I was racking up debt. I racked up some debt. I I took on too much too quickly. And I had some credit card bills that I wasn't really excited about. And I was not sure how the hell I was going to get rid of all of them. And so I was looking for ways to, to, to make more income. And the speaking thing, you're trading your time for money. You can only do that so much, right? We know that you can only do so much of that. So it wasn't a, that wasn't the real reason for it, but it was a good, it was a decently paying gig, but I really enjoyed that. And I also got to, to surround myself with these other speakers that have done lots of other things at a high level. And then the other thing is, um, and I never actually pursued this, but Toastmasters, you familiar with Toastmasters? Heard it. Yeah. It's like a club for public speaking, right? Just a club you pay to be a member of, you get together at meetups, you talk about a topic, go home, you research it, you create a speech, and then you come in and deliver it. And they have national competitions. It's a pretty cool thing. Anyway, I, I was really interested in that. And I was really pursuing the John Maxwell, if you know who John Maxwell is, his like public speaking certificate, certificates and such. I thought it was really nice. Why, or I thought it was really cool. Why I liked it so much though is when I joined that first coaching program, the people that were selling from stage were making bank. They were making bank and they were inspiring the hell out of a big room of people. Mm-hmm. And I got energized by that. And so I thought if I can become a perfect speaker and I can really hone that, Maybe one day I could find myself in that role. And that didn't happen because, again, the pandemic shut a lot of public speaking down, as you can imagine. Um, They were not allowing people to fill rooms with hundreds of people and talk to each other. But so that kind of went away. But, yeah, in a nutshell, that's it. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Personal development. I mean, uh, you know, it's easier to connect the dots going backwards, right? Um, To see. Yeah, to see, you know, how things kind of have unfolded. but. Your entire, not your entire story, but the the past 20 years, two decades, like you're, 
you're just looking at personal you're just looking at growth um in positive ways right you were trying to grow your business uh well build a business grow your business and you're trying to grow yourself like it's all it's all things that are benefiting you today and i'm sure you're continuing doing those things so you took us up to the pandemic 2020 what's it look like past uh, i guess four years now at this point good question so before I move on to the, the past the past four years, I want to mention what you just said, connecting the dots backwards. Have you read The Gap in the Gain? Have you read the book, The Gap in the Gain by uh, Dan Barton? I have read the whole book, but I understand the yeah, the concept. Dan Sullivan and Benjamin Hardy. Dude, that measure always measure backwards is a big deal. The subtitle to that is The High Achiever's Guide to Happiness and Success or something like this. If you find yourself in the gap, that's where we most of us entrepreneurs are. From where you want to be to where you'd rather be, which is an ever-moving horizon, right? The gain is when you turn backwards and look at the progress made from the start point, starting point to where you are today. That is such a helpful tool. And that book I rank right up there next to Rich Dad, Poor Dad for paradigm shifts and, and moments that I've read books. That, that was a great one. But you can only connect dots backwards. You can't connect them forward. That's what you said. And I pulled that directly from that book. And you're exactly right. That's, the, again, back to the beauty of and the power of mentorship. Those people ahead of me have done it. Who am I to think I can't gain from them? So anyhow, the past four years, man, what does it look like? In 2021, as you know, interest rates have done some crazy things over the last three, four years. Mm -hmm. Interest rates were really low. In 2021, I refinanced a big portfolio, a big package of my portfolio. Actually, I think I refinanced that year about 25, 30 houses and was able to pull out some cash, um, a significant amount of six-figure tax-free dollars. And I thought, I want to be a good steward of this. And I could double down on my own, my current businesses, and I could self-fund some deals um, I, I try to avoid lifestyle, you know, upgrade or improvement or whatever they say. I try to avoid that. We're all, we all see shiny things we want to, we want, but so I try to avoid that. But I, um, I, I have a, a picture from my whiteboard of all the people that I met with. There's about 15 to 20 of them and all the topics we talked about. Cause I wanted to make sure when I pulled this cash that I was doing with it, something really, really productive. So I didn't just want to pull out this money and go on a vacation, go buy my wife, something, go buy a new house although we did that, I, but I didn't want to necessarily do all of those things. So I had a lot of conversations and I entertained all sorts of things. Bitcoin was insanely popular at the time. Um, there was a lot of things that I entertained. Uh, and so, but the two people that I met with on that list that I most resonated with personality wise, and that I'd been the closest with as these, the businesses were developing were both hard money lenders. And mm -hmm. as it relates to the residential real estate investment models, and talking wholesaling, fix and flip, burr, uh, being an agent, the hard money model of, as just a business model, I like it the most for a lot of reasons. But I also now had a resume that kind of spoke, that kind of allowed me to, to, to have some, to be there, right? I had experience, I had some cash, I had access to other people's cash. And so I, um, I decided hard money lending was the space for me. And so I started a, a small boutique hard money lending business. It's still very boutique in size. I don't plan to become anything very, very big. You and I know some, some, we have some mutual friends that are very big in the space and I don't have strong desires for that. I want to keep my business very small and lean and, but I really like the model. And for a couple of reasons, a, it allows me to sit across from a borrower. Again, I mentioned relationships over transactions. I belly up with all of my borrowers for a coffee or lunch and it gives me an opportunity to be a more of a value add to them than just providing dollars, right? I can provide them with resources or um, be a therapist uh, at times. And so it really got some value from that, I, some fulfillment from that. But so I started doing the hard money thing 
And then um, I, I've, I've done that now for two and a half, three years now. We've been, we've been running a boutique operation here out of Baltimore, uh, mainly lending in the, the Maryland, Southern Pennsylvania markets. Um, but then I kind of want to get back to my that network. Will I, will I, yeah, I will. Yes. Okay. Yep. So I don't, if you're nationwide looking for a hard money lender, look up Sean. Find me. I'll, we'll share some info at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely will. I've, I mean, and, and I've actually done a few deals now. I'm predominantly in Maryland and Pennsylvania, but I've done a few deals outside of those two metros. Yeah, those two sorry, metros. I derailed you there. Go ahead. Oh, no, you're good. You're good. Um, so hard money, that's been a primary focus of mine. And uh, I also brought on a few team members, a bookkeeper, an assistant to take away a lot of the day-to-day operational minutia of my um, my rental property portfolio because we do manage that in-house. I don't outsource it to a third party, so it is managed in-house. Got opinions on both ways, neither right nor wrong. But um, I uh, So hiring those people bought me back a lot of time, bought a lot of my time. And so I decided to kind of get back to the roots of coaching. And um, now we're, we've launched, recently launched a, a coaching model, a coaching business as well to, again, kind of what we just talked about, connect dots for folks. It's less about income uh, than it is in uh, impact. Um, but, I, you know, I don't, I won't, you know, that's really it. So since then, the last few years, it's been me building out a hard money business and building out a, a coaching a coaching mastermind. That's awesome. So tell us a little bit about your coaching. What what are you coaching? Sure. The avatar, the, 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 the ideal client avatar would be, a newer real estate investor, maybe somebody that's never done a deal, maybe a brand new person that wants that that lifestyle design, that freedom that it, that they see. Um, so, a newer real estate investor that that is willing to invest in themselves, to systematize and set up a business the right way out of the jump, or a, a little more of an experienced investor that's doing well, but is not very well organized. So I can help them kind of systematize and structure their business in a way that allows them to level up to consistent six or seven figures. Really, those are the, the two people we seek. If if it's somebody that uh, owns 800 rental properties and they want to bundle this thing and take their business public, dude, I am certainly not the guy. No way, <laughs> right? I realize that. But if somebody wants to have a cool little lifestyle brand that allows a lot of time, freedom, time, freedom, financial freedom, um, and uh, and have this little boutique operation like we do. It's provided a beautiful, wonderful life, and I enjoy the hell out of it, and I want it for others. So that's really who the avatar is, is the newer investor, the brand new investor, an agent that wants to become an investor, a wholesaler that wants to learn how to mm-hmm. fix and a fix and flipper that wants to learn how to build and scale a rental property portfolio. But when they start talking about leaving Resi to go commercial and multifamily, I'm not the guy. I recognize that. I stay in my lane. I'm a Resi operator. That's awesome. No, well, anyone listening that's even thinking about wonder if Sean's a fit, I would reach out to him. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I, I would stand behind that to say I'm sure you're probably a very very good coach. There's too many, and there's also, and I do have one more question. Then we can get into where how people can find you. Um, but there's a difference between coaching and gurus. You're not a guru. You're a coach. You're in it for the right reasons. Like I'm sure the people listening can tell you're in it for the right reason. So that's awesome. Um, what, this is my last, this is my hopefully last question, a typical kind of podcast question. What are you better at than anybody else? Ooh. Mm. Probably recognizing my weaknesses. Mm. 
Um, and hmm, that's a great question. Love that question. Uh, I also like that you didn't tee that up before before the show and, and tell me you're going to ask me that. Yeah, so you, put you me asked me. Spot. Yeah, by the way, uh, obviously the audience wasn't <laughs> pre-show, but uh, Sean asked, "What should I be prepared for?" I'm not going to tell you that question. You got to. I love that. Off the dome, you got to figure Look, it out. I like. Maybe that's the thing. I'm my superpower is preparation. Uh, no, I do think that I can. I find where I'm weak, and I find people that I can surround myself with that'll that'll shore that up. I think that's that might be a superpower of mine for sure. Um, I feel that I'm a strong communicator. I'm a pretty well organized person, um, but I'm not as disciplined as I'd want to be. Right? Like when I think of time blocking and things, I move stuff around in my calendar all the time. I'm not perfect, so I don't think that's my superpower. But I do think that. What I'm better at than most is probably uh, recognizing my weaknesses when I'm right, when I'm wrong, my weaknesses and how to make those improvements and how to pivot and not being afraid to to make those changes. And also, I wouldn't say I'm better than everybody at this, but man, uh, taking a bet on betting on myself, I'm I'm very good at it. That's awesome. That's all. It's funny going through these shows and and getting to know people a little bit more. I could usually answer that question for them better they than they can answer it. Just what would you have said then? What's that? But what would you have said then? I, you well, a couple things. You surround who you surround yourself with, and um, you're intentional, and um, you're always eager to learn and ask questions. Like those are definitely your strengths. I I don't like saying just one unless it's clear, blatant. But yeah, you're. Yeah. I mean, from the show like it just completely stands out it's funny sometimes we don't know our strengths and weaknesses right sometimes but i've noticed too and and we're gonna wrap up here i've noticed too doing other people's podcasts talk about your story it's kind of again connecting the the dots backwards but a lot of things start to make sense and a lot of self-realization happens too at least for myself it's like oh i didn't even realize that happened but thanks for asking that question and reminding me you know, so, something else I want to add to that real quick is yeah. my old man has always said this to me. He said, you always make the right decision. And I make the right decision seem easy, but it's because I pour over it and it gets gut-wrenching. For weeks and weeks and weeks, I'll think about something, maybe minute or huge. And I, I when I pull the trigger, I pull the trigger and I'm committed to it because I yep. I make it seem easy because he only sees that part of the decision-making. Yep. He doesn't see the, or the, the decision trigger-pulling. He doesn't see the decision influencing all the while, all the things I'm pouring over, how this decision is going to impact everybody that I can think of and, and how it's going to impact every one of them. And so I pour over these things. So then I wait, when I make the decision, I run with it. I know it's the right one. So that's something that, that he always, he's always said, but that's the why. I mean, I, I make these, I make big decisions seem easy because they are gut wrenching to me. I I spend so much time focused on them. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's an awesome, uh, I guess kind of tidbit to, to put a bow on everything. So, where can people find you? you? Obviously, you have a few things going on. Where can people find you? Easiest way to find me is on Facebook and Instagram. I'm on all the socials, but Sean Magner. Fortunately, it's a unique enough name that I've got that handle everywhere. So Sean Magner uh, on Instagram and Facebook is where I'm most active, but we're on all the socials. It's awesome. Awesome. Well, appreciate you coming on. This was an awesome show, man. Um, I'm sure everyone got a ton out of it. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks, buddy. Thanks for following, subscribing, and listening to this episode of the Do More podcast hosted by John Farling. To learn more or ask questions, go to l4investing.com.